Y'all turn with me to Proverbs 16, verse 32. Proverbs, Proverbs 16, verse 32. We're going to look at a couple of verses from the Proverbs and also one from Galatians. So you're going to have to be very dexterous this morning uh, to keep up with us. But uh, I have this theory. I can't prove it. But I have this theory that intelligence, human intelligence is basically spread evenly across the human race, that there's not really people who are smarter than others. Everybody's smart in their own way. And so you'll have, um, for instance, a guy who is an engineering genius, but he can't talk to save his life. You can't have a conversation with him. He's totally inarticulate. You've got a woman who is eloquent in her speech and in her writing, but she knows nothing about finances. And you've got a guy who barely graduated high school, but he can fix anything on earth. Everybody's a genius in some area. Now, the corollary to that theory is that the stupidity in the world is not evenly spread, that, that it's concentrated among a certain portion of the population, mostly, mostly the male uh, population. Um, am I right, ladies? Can I get an amen? Yeah. So, again, as a public service to you, I have compiled a list of the kinds of things that men say when they're about to do something really, really dumb. Because we usually do say something. We sort of announce it, okay? So this is, with, with apologies to Dave Letterman, this is uh, the top ten list of famous last words of idiot men. You ready? Because if you hear any of these words come out of a man's mouth, then run. Something bad is about to happen. Something's going to get destroyed. Someone's going to get killed. So ready? Top ten. Number ten. Hey, watch this. Number nine, I wonder what lives in this hole. Number eight, let's push this button and see what happens. Number seven, he's not so big. I can take him. Number six, helmet. I don't need no stinking helmet. Number five, don't worry. They're more afraid of humans than we are of them. Number four, who reads the directions anyway? Anybody testify right now? Um, number three, I saw Evil Knievel try this once. Millennials, go ahead and Google that. It's okay. We understand. Number, number two, hey, honey, since I've been working all day and you've been sitting around here playing with the kids, how about you fix me something to eat? Yeah. And the number one stupid thing that men say, oh, I ain't scared. We know these things. I've done a lot of research in this. I've basically been in this field my whole life. So I know, I know these things. And it's not just men. We're talking about self-control today. We're actually in a series about growing in Christ and developing the characteristics of a disciple. See, a disciple is what we want to build here at First Baptist. It's not enough to have a church where people come on Sundays. That's great. Man, it... it makes me happy to look out here and see so many people gathering at 8.30 and 11. It makes me happy to see people joining our congregation. That's always exciting. But let's be honest. You can draw a crowd for all kinds of wrong reasons. So just bringing people here is not a worthy goal. We want God to renovate our hearts. We want God to make us a group of people who live such genuinely Christ-like lives that we make others want to be disciples of Jesus. And what does a disciple of Jesus look like? 
It's not just somebody that goes to church on Sundays. It's not just somebody who abstains from a few vices and does a few religious things or believes in certain doctrines. Man, the, the Bible gives us some ideas of what a Christian ought to look like, how we ought to live, how we ought to think, how we ought to speak. There are qualities that should be seen in us that don't come naturally to the human race. Qualities like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and today self-control. If you've read the Bible before, you might recognize that from, Genesis, from Galatians 5. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Next week, we're going to continue with there's three more things on the list. So we're, we're not just limiting ourselves to the fruit of the Spirit. We're also going to talk about humility and generosity and wisdom. But today we're talking about self-control. Self-control means to be sober, to be temperate, to be even-headed, to be, to be in control of your spirit. Solomon wrote these words in, in Proverbs 16, 32. This is where we're starting. Remember, Solomon, the wisest man in the world at the time, and he said, he who rules his spirit is better than he who captures a city. There were no greater heroes, no greater uh, people of renown in the ancient world than people who were strong enough to lead a victorious army. And yet Solomon says even better is someone who can rule his spirit. Today, we look up to, we put on the covers of magazines, we, we devote uh, miniseries to and documentaries to people who look a certain way or who can make a certain amount of money, who have certain skills. You know, ridiculous. I referenced college football a while ago, but think about the adulation we heap on someone because they play a child's game. It is a little ridiculous. And yet Solomon says, the person you should really admire is the person who is in control of his own spirit. They're in control of their emotions. They're in control of their own passions and desires and motivations. They don't, you know, there's that old uh, movie line from the 70s, love means never having to say you're sorry. You know, the truth is self-control means never having to say you're sorry because you don't do anything that you're sorry for because you're in control of that part of you that's, that's always striving for more. Uh, Solomon would go on to write in Proverbs 25, 28. Again, this is the opposite side of what he just said. It's, it's coming at it from the negative point of view. He says, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his own spirit. See, in the ancient world, cities usually had walls around them because there was no police force. There was no standing army. And so your defense against a, a band of, of raiders or an enemy army invading and sacking your city, your defense was to build a big wall that way, if you were asleep at night and, and the enemy advanced and tried to get into the city, you'd hear them battering the walls, and the men of the city had time to wake up and, and gather their weapons and prepare a defense. See, a city with no walls is a city that's, that's vulnerable. Just imagine if Conroe had no police force, if all of a sudden all the police just walked off the job tomorrow. And you're like, hey, man, I'm packing. I'd be just fine. But listen, <laughs> seriously. Imagine a city with no defenses. Imagine knowing any day someone could break into your house, harm you and your family. There'd be no one you could call. And that's a city with no walls. In the ancient world, if there were no walls around your city, you might wake up one day and your house is burned to the ground and you're already enslaved, you and your children and your spouse. And Paul, uh, uh, Solomon says that's, that's what it's like to be a man who has no self-control or a woman who has no self-control. You can live that way for a while, but eventually you look around and realize, I've burned down everything. I've destroyed everything because I couldn't say no to my own emotions, my own desires, my own passions. 
Self-control, when it's missing, shows up in several ways in our lives. I want to list for you seven different things, several different ways we can see lack of self-control manifest itself in our lives. And you may recognize this in your life, at least one or two of these. Number one, there are bad decisions. Self-control leads to bad decisions. And we all laughed when we heard about those last words of, of, of silly men, but we've all done things we're ashamed of, every single one of us. Well, wouldn't it be awful if someone did a, 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 a bio picture of you, you know, a, a biography of you, and they portrayed the good and the bad, and you look and say, oh man, I wish they wouldn't do that scene. I wish they wouldn't show that decision I made. We've all done it. And usually, can we be honest? It's not because we didn't know right from wrong. It's because we chose to go with what was easy. We chose to go with what was convenient. We chose the decision that benefited us at the expense of others. We regretted it terribly later. Secondly, there's rage. Self, lack of self-control leads to this uncontrolled anger that we just spew out on people around us and we harm others and we do terrible things. I don't know about you, but I can think of all kinds of really, really dumb things I've done and said and harmful things that I wish I could take back just because I lost my temper. I can't think of a single thing that I'm, I think, man, I got mad that one day and I'm so glad I did. Boy, it sure turned things for the better. It sure blessed the world. And I guarantee you, my wife and my kids won't be able to testify and say, you know, one of the best things about dad was when he lost his temper, he was a great guy. Rage is, is a terrible thing. The anger of human beings does us no good. And it comes from a lack of self-control and not being willing to say no to that little inner fuse, that inner dynamite. Lust is a third result of a lack of self-control. And I know people will say, hold on there, preacher, don't be such a Puritan. And I understand, I understand we're all born with sexual desire in our hearts, but Jesus talked about it. He talked about the damage it can cause when you let that God-created desire within you go uncontrolled. And we see the fruits of it in our society today. This is one of those areas where there's absolute tolerance and it has warped and frustrated our relationships with one another as men and women. And men, uh, so many of us, so many of us addicted to the scourge of pornography that just totally perverts your idea of what a woman should be. And women, having to live in a world where you're constantly being judged by your appearance. And if you're, if you're attractive, well, that's a curse because people see you only for that. And if, if they don't think you're attractive enough, that's another curse. And they judge you for that. And it's, it's all wrong. The very least important thing about you is the thing that that men talk about the most and notice the most, and it's all a result of a lack of self-control and letting our emotions and our desires control us instead of us controlling them. Fourth is evil speaking. We say things that we shouldn't say because we don't have that inner filter that says, hey, that doesn't need to go out of your lips. And so we gossip about others, and so we slander others, and so we speak hateful words to someone. We accuse, we criticize, we carp, we, we, we scream, we abuse, we curse, we swear, we, we utter all kinds of profanities. We are this torrent of abuse and pollution that comes out of our mouths. And one of the frustrating things about living today for me is watching the level of political discourse today. And I'm not just talking about what you see on TV. I hope you don't waste your time watching that. I'm talking about the way we talk to one another when we meet someone who disagrees with us because suddenly we treat them like, hey, you're not a fellow child of God who just disagrees with me on a certain issue with whom I'd like to dialogue helpfully so that we can come to an agreement. No, you are un-American. You are hateful. You are the problem. And I must exterminate you verbally. 
And our kids watch this. They watch how we speak to each other, to them, to our spouse, and it twists the way they grow up. Lack of self-control leads to number five, overspending. Now, I've gone to meddling here, okay? Overspending. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. And, and it leads to damage in our lives. I looked it up the other day. The average American family carries $5,700 worth of credit card debt. 30% of people say, I will never get out of debt. By the way, that $5,700 total, that's all Americans. If you take away the people who make the most, it doubles. So people who make the least carry the most debt because we can't say no. Number six, there's self-indulgence and addiction. I looked up the stats on alcohol abuse alone. Just alcohol, if you, if you find out how much does alcohol abuse cost us as Americans every year for treatment facilities, for people who've, uh, who've uh, caused accidents, uh, for crime prevention, etc. Alcohol addiction, alcohol abuse alone costs America $223.5 billion a year. And that's just alcohol. That's not illegal drugs. That's not legal drugs misused. That's not counting overeating. Yes, I went there. Lack of self-control that says, I have to feed what says feed me. I have to do what my body tells me. And not only is it destroying us physically, it's bleeding us dry financially. Finally, number seven, it leads to what I call free-range idiocy which is a lack of emotional maturity that leads us to act like children. I read a story uh, some years ago of a, of a young man who was at a baseball game. It happened to be a Rangers game in Arlington, and there was a foul, foul ball that landed in the stands at the feet of a four-year-old boy, and this 28-year-old guy shoved the four-year-old kid out of the way to grab the ball. And, and, of course, it was on the Jumbotron. The whole stadium booed this guy. The kid's mom slapped him with her program, trying to get him to relinquish the ball, but he wouldn't. Several players from both teams came over and gave the boy signed uh, souvenirs. And, and still, this guy, this 28-year-old man, held on to his prize. He wasn't going to give it up. Four days later, after seeing how he'd been uh, mocked and berated on national television, he came forward and offered an apology and offered to buy tickets for that family to attend a future game. But here's the, here's the worst part of the story. He was a minister at a church in that area. And, and of course, in all the media stories, they never mention that, right? No, they, that was the headline. 28-year-old minister knocks four-year-old boy over. I mean, this is, this is what happens, friends, when we lack self-control. We act like children. It's mine. I've got to finish first. I've got to get in the last word. She can't talk to me that way. We act like free-range idiots, and we disgrace the kingdom of God. So what does your struggle with self-control look like? Because let's all face it, all of us struggle in some way. Maybe, maybe you're, you do fine with spending, but you have a hard time holding your temper. Maybe, maybe you're pretty good at decision-making, but man, the way you look at the opposite gender. Maybe, maybe you're good at, at, at withholding your own... Uh, your own appetite, but you say awful things about other people. What does your battle with self-control look like? Confess it to God. Now's a good time to just say, okay, Lord, 
you've identified for me something that I know is wrong, please help me to handle it right now. If your eyes are closed over the next five minutes, I'll know you're praying. You're not sleeping. You're praying and confessing it to God. So what do we do beyond just confessing it? Galatians 5, 24 through 25 has some great instruction for those of us that lack self-control. He says, this is the Apostle Paul writing, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In those two verses, there are two instructions for us. And I know you're like, wait, you're a Baptist preacher. You're supposed to have three points. Well, I'm, I'm using admirable self-control here. There's only two points to the message. Hallelujah. Number one, turn away from the old way of living. Turn away from the old way you used to be. This is a message that's all through the Bible, this idea of new birth. Think about how many times God met somebody and gave them a new name. I can't do that. I can't walk up to you and say, okay, I know you've always been Paul, but I'm going to call you, uh, you know, Sparky. And you're like, yeah, no, you're not. God can do that. God can change your name. God can make you a new person. Jesus meets one of the most religious men of his time. And the first thing he says to him is, hey, you know what? You need to be born again. You can't get into heaven the way you are. You have to become a new person. At the end of the Bible, it talks about in Revelation, us standing before God and him giving us a new name, new clothing, redeeming us totally from head to toe. See, it's time for us to understand God wants to make us new. That first verse we read, verse 24, Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I want to make something clear. Not all desire is bad. In fact, desire on its own is just fine. If you didn't have a desire for food, you wouldn't eat and you'd starve to death. If human beings were not created with a desire for the opposite sex, then we wouldn't get married and have children and the human race would cease to exist. Desire is good, but not if desire leads us, not if our appetites and desires judge or, or tell us what to do. You know, the, the, the famous slogan in movies is, follow your heart, listen to your gut. That is baloney. Your heart and your gut will lead you wrong more often than not. Turn away from that. There was a movie when I was a kid, big movie one summer called Gremlins. Anybody see this back in the 80s? So in the movie, for those of you that hadn't seen it, there's this teenage boy, his dad goes to a shop in Chinatown, finds this cute little creature called a gremlin, brings it to his son, says, hey, here you go. Here's, here's a gift from me. Uh, the guy at the shop said, they're very easy to take care of. Just make sure you feed them and don't get them wet. That's the only instruction. Make sure you don't get them wet. Now, who here thinks that the kid gets the gremlin wet at some point, right? Yeah, it wouldn't be a movie if not. And what happens when the gremlin gets wet is they multiply and they turn into... Um, you know, mutant chihuahuas on meth. I mean, they're just crazy, these crazy little demonic creatures that go nuts and destroy the town. And it's a great picture. I know this wasn't the purpose of the movie. It's just a popcorn film. But it, it, it's a great picture of what happens when we let our desires rule us. You know, on their own, desires are great. If you manage your desires well, there is no greater joy, friends, no greater joy than enjoying the things God has given you. Man, there's no greater joy. We talked about it when we studied joy a few weeks ago. No greater joy than taking joy in 
uh, the spouse that God has given you if you're married, in the friends God has brought into your lives, and in the food God has provided for you, and all the things that you have, fulfilling those God-given desires with the things he's given you. But when your desires take control, they're like those gremlins. They just multiply and they, they destroy you. And so Paul says, if you belong to Christ Jesus, you have crucified the old self with its evil passions and its desires. He says, you've crucified the flesh. Here's a, here's a key. One thing you'll notice if you read the Bible, the word the flesh is never used in a positive sense. The flesh refers to that part of you that wants to be unhindered, that part of you that wants to live without self-control, without any conformity to God's commands. And you have to crucify that. You have to say, my Lord died because I was this way. Therefore, I'm going to consider that part of me dead. And I'm not going to feed it anymore. John Piper, uh, the famous preacher, talks about, man, if you're being tempted, the worst thing you can do is think about that temptation. The best thing you can do is think about the cross. Think about what Jesus went through for you and for me. The cost of our sin. And then that sin doesn't seem as tempting anymore. It's sort of like if a man who was contemplating an affair suddenly thought about his wife and kids and realized, here's what I'm going to lose if I go on with this decision. Same way, if you're being tempted and you think, hey, this is the whole reason my Lord had to die and I'm going to keep on living this way, what kind of lack of respect is that for the God who loves me this much? So turn away from that old way of living. See, let me just put it very simply. We have a tendency to take our own lack of control, self-control and make it into a joke. <laughs> yeah, I, I just say whatever's on my mind. That's who I am. Yeah, I've got a bad temper. Everybody knows that about me. Well, you know, when I go into a shop, whatever I see that I want, I just buy it. It's really not funny. It's something we should be sorrowful for. We should call it sin. We should recognize the damage it does to us and to others and the way it distorts in the minds of people who know us what a Christian is supposed to be, what the gospel is supposed to be. So we turn that stuff over to God and we say, Lord, change me. But that's not all. Secondly, Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Keep in step, he says, with the Spirit of God. Now, I don't know if Carl Sandburg was a Christian or not, the famous poet, but he said something that sounds a lot like the Christian life. He said, there is in me an eagle that wants to soar and a hippopotamus that wants to wallow in the mud. Can anybody identify with that? There is in me an eagle that wants to soar and a hippo that wants to wallow in the mud. And I think we all know what that's like. By nature, Scripture would say, by nature, we're hippos. Now, we're made in the image of God, and so there's that part of us that says, hey, there's got to be something more than this, than this swamp that I'm wallowing in. But on our own, we can't get up out of that swamp. We just can't do it. But when Jesus comes into our lives and there's this new birth, we get this new nature and there is inside of us this eagle that wants to soar, that wants to do great things, that wants to live up to our head, Jesus Christ, and wants to change people's lives for good and love them in His name and do good deeds and glorify His holy name. But we still got that old nature. And sure, it's been crucified with Christ, but a hippo... I bet a hippo takes a long time to die, and our old nature takes a long time to die. So the key is to feed the eagle and starve the hippo, right? Feed the new nature and let your old nature die. Let nature take its course. So how do you feed the new you? 
Spiritual disciplines is the answer. Now, I grew up in a little Baptist church in the country. I never heard the term spiritual disciplines until I was an adult. When I was growing up, all I knew was, as a Christian, I was supposed to read the Bible, I was supposed to go to church, and I was supposed to say my prayers. Well, those are three spiritual disciplines right there. Anything you do to know God better, to conform your life to His will, to change your character in His name, To spend time in his presence, that's a spiritual discipline. Fasting, solitude, silence, uh, generosity. These are all spiritual disciplines. And by the way, conveniently enough, a week from Wednesday, August 30th, we're beginning a new study on spiritual disciplines on Wednesday nights. I'm going to be teaching a class on, on the Old Testament, but Alan's going to be teaching a class on spiritual disciplines. I highly recommend that you take that class, especially if this is a concept you're not familiar with. Or if you know, I need a spiritual jumpstart. I need to know how I can get closer to God. But even if you don't take that class, just know whatever you do to draw closer to God is going to bear fruit. Because you keep in step with the Spirit by getting close to Him. It's got to be an intentional thing. You can't just wake up tomorrow and say, tomorrow I'm going to have self-control. Good luck with that. There's this great story from World War II that I read about recently. Never heard it before, even though I'm a history nerd. It's called Operation Halyard. In the summer of 1942, Allied pilots were sent to Eastern Europe to bomb the oil fields that were supplying the Nazi war machine. And they knew they knew it was going to be a suicide mission because it was too far away. They couldn't drop their payloads and then turn around and make it back to Allied territory. They were going to have to land in enemy territory and somehow hope they would be able to make their way back to safety without being killed or captured. But when those men landed or were shot down, whatever the case may be, they were all greeted by Yugoslavian freedom fighters, these Serbian men and women who uh, had come specifically to help them, who were against the Nazis and were going to do whatever they could to rescue these pilots. And, and the way they, what they did was they kept them hidden while they built a secret airstrip, a secret landing strip in the forest. And the, what they had to do was they had to hide them in the homes of peasants. And they had to move them every day or two so that local police um, and collaborators with the Nazis wouldn't, wouldn't catch on. And eventually they built the landing strip. They brought these pilots out there. An American C-47 was able to land and carry these pilots to safety. And amazingly, every single pilot was rescued. 512 men in all. All of them were able to get home, with, get home safely. Now here's how that relates to the spiritual life. You and I are living behind enemy lines. Like I said earlier, If you think you're going to be able to just wake up tomorrow and be a man or woman of self-control, and I'm not going to say anything inappropriate, and I'm not going to eat anything that's not healthy, and I'm not going to spend money that I don't have to, and everything's going to be just right, it's not going to work. It can't work. Our flesh is against us. Our very bodies conspire against us. But the Holy Spirit is there to rescue us. The Spirit of God can take us step by step, every step of the way, to safety. And just like those American pilots who landed and here all of a sudden here are these strange people they never thought they'd see, who didn't even speak their language, but were just like, hey, come with me. They followed them. 
And because they followed and did not deviate from those instructions, they were rescued. You and I, if we learn to live our lives in constant dependence upon the Spirit of God, where we don't dare walk out the door if we haven't had time alone with our Father, if we don't dare make a decision without stopping to pray about it first, if we make sure we're in God's house on Sundays because we need the fellowship of God's people, we need our brothers and sisters to pray for us and encourage us, and we need for them to hold us accountable, if we don't dare skip moments where we get away with God alone, do whatever we can to feed our souls. That's to live the life dependent on the Holy Spirit where you're walking in step with Him. And behind enemy lines, He can lead you to safety, to victory, to salvation. See, the best news I can give you is this. Your eternal destiny and the love of your Heavenly Father Do not depend even one bit on your self-control or lack thereof. If you have been hearing this sermon and you're like, yep, you've described me. I've got no self-control. I'm a free-range idiot and that's all I am. So there's no way God is ever going to love me. You're wrong. See, the reason why, the, the, the best news you've ever heard is this. Jesus performed the greatest act of self-control ever. The man who had infinite power, allowed himself to die at the hands of weak and foolish men so that you and I wouldn't have to. He experienced hell so we could have heaven. And he didn't just die so we could have eternal life. He died so we could be made new. So as we go through this life and we think about our struggle with self-control, it's not just about having a healthy waistline or a healthy bottom line or having good relationships with others. It's about saying, hey, Jesus died so I didn't have to live this way. Jesus died so I could live in freedom. Jesus died so I could walk away from all these times where I'm constantly having to feel guilty and constantly having to apologize, constantly having to see the wreckage of the bad decision I just made. Jesus died so I could be made new. And others would see in me something they've never seen before and certainly didn't expect to see in me. A person of self-control who uses his passions and desires and emotions only to bless others. And that's how the world gets transformed. I can preach till my head falls off. Nobody's going to be saved. But if you live this life in step with the Spirit, confronting the parts of you that you know aren't what they should be, in humility and boldness, that's so powerful. The world has no explanation for that. And you'll see lives around you transformed. Wouldn't you love to see that happen?